Hello and welcome. I'm Alex Promos, Head of Institutional Content and Investment Magazine, and this is Market Narratives. This show is a series of unorthodox conversations with thought leaders influencing the world of fiduciary investors. For more related insights and analysis, please remember to check out our website, investmentmagazine.com.au, and subscribe for a free email. And with that, please enjoy this week's episode. My guest today is Hand Nordby. He is the Head of Research and Analytics at Lionstone Investments. In this episode, we discuss the big picture on how US real estate in the 2020s will differ from the last 10 years. We cover a number of key trends, such as the accelerated migration, the change in housing patterns, not only in where people choose to live in cities, but also the format of housing. We talk about building obsolescence versus best-in-class and winner-take-all real estate, We explore the impact of taxes and regulation on migration trends and how some companies are also establishing offices in gateway cities or spoke locations as they try to capture the newfound population growth to these areas. Finally, we touch on the factors that drive location attractiveness, the relative importance of sustainability, and what are some of the upside and downside risks that may eventuate in consensus uh, real estate forecasts. I hope you enjoy the conversation. So Hans, let's kick off with the big picture around real estate. We've obviously seen COVID this year. How do you think the 2020s will potentially change versus the last 10 years? Well, Alex, we think there's three big trends that are going to make the 2020s much different than the the post-GFC era. The first is accelerated migration. The second is a change in housing patterns. So not just the cities that people choose to live in, and not only where they choose to live within the cities, but also the format of the housing structures themselves. And then thirdly, winner-take-all real estate outcomes. The best-in-class buildings, they're going to lease really well, but functionally obsolescent buildings, they're going to struggle to lease at all. So those are the big three trends we think define the next 10 years. How do you define accelerated migration? That can mean obviously a lot of things to different people, but what does it mean to you guys? Well, to us, this means that the people in the companies increasingly will be moving to what what we refer to as the hockey stick. And that's the region stretching from the upper left-hand corner of the U.S., down through the Rockies to Texas, and then over through the Carolinas. So the hockey stick, that's that's a shape that probably resonates better in North America than it does uh, there down under. But I think you get sort of the visualization uh, of that shape. The question really is why they would move there. Um, But really, this is a trend that was already underway pre-pandemic and has been accelerated, like a lot of other things, by COVID-19. And the real driver here is the millennials. The millennials average 30 years of age today. And the pandemic is accelerating the same life choices their parents, the baby boomers, made 30 years ago. There are differences, of course. Changes in connectivity today make work from anywhere, or WFA, for many knowledge workers, pretty doable. For millennials starting families, these policies of work from anywhere are supporting out-migration from high-cost cities like New York or San Francisco into these hockey stick markets. Here's an important difference, though. Unlike the smile cities, so-called growth of the 90s and aughts, Uh, which are sort of the Southeast, Southwest, looks like a smile across the Southern US. That population growth in those cities at that time was characterized by back office and service jobs. Now we see a lot of evidence today and leasing in our buildings 
that the most productive companies and people are moving important operations into these cities. So this isn't just back office, it's high value add. Raleigh, Austin, Salt Lake City. These are some of the fastest growing markets in the US for job growth among the highly productive people and jobs that Lionstone focus on for our US investment strategies. Is there any particular trend that COVID maybe has brought out that wasn't happening maybe before 2020? Well, that is new, and that that relates to uh, the second trend, where people choose to live within cities instead of not just between them, and then also the format of the housing. So, So first within, if we look at where people are moving towards, it's towards space, lower costs, better government services, notably safety and public school quality for the middle class. This is where within cities people are choosing to live and people are moving to cities that offer these things uh, in a better way. So let's look at some real world examples. I think it's instructive to see what's been happening so far. Two examples are New York and the Bay Area on the negative side. They've had negative apartment absorption for several quarters, so fewer apartments uh, occupied each quarter this year. We think this is a really interesting data source that we're examining. So quarterly apartment absorption, that data is more live than any government data source in terms of of migration. Then compare that with Raleigh, Atlanta, and most of those hockey stick markets. Most apartment submarkets this year have posted positive absorption in those cities. So lots of migration out of the most expensive, densest markets, Um, also some public safety issues in some of the coastal markets this year. So that's the first call, accelerated migration. But there are two other trends here that are less intuitive and worth noting. Submarkets that offer a walkable lifestyle without the high costs and high density that are in the markets that have out-migration. Let's, let's make that a little bit more real. So in the Bay Area, there were only a very few submarkets that posted positive demand growth in the third quarter. And those were the Oakland and North Broadway submarkets in, in the East Bay. In New York, Williamsburg, Fort Lee and Hackensack. So those are in Brooklyn and New Jersey, just outside of Manhattan. You know, conversely, the really suburban areas outside of New York, like White Plains or Terrytown, they had negative net demand. So people aren't just moving to the suburbs. They aren't just moving away from these coastal markets. They, they want a mix that is not as extreme. So, so, so if we look at, uh, for example, Atlanta and Houston, the high density didn't work there either. The central business district, CBD, in those cities had negative demand growth. So this isn't just about people escaping something. It's about going towards something. And it's not just suburban. It's a little bit more complex. So this is a a burgeoning phenomenon. It's been going on for a while. And let's tie it all together now. So as employees return to the office for three to four days per week, instead of four to five days per week, the high-density urban markets, they're going to struggle to lure that diaspora back. Well-paid knowledge workers, they're going to want larger apartments to accommodate all that work from anywhere. So they want that space factor. In addition, as the millennials age from 30 and single to mid-30s and coupled up, their household incomes will rise and their interest in adult-size housing will as well. And that's especially true as many of these couples are going to have children. So the urban CBD environment that we built over the past decade, that's dominated by one bedroom and studio apartments. The built environment doesn't accommodate 
where the growth is the next 10 years. These apartments are too small to house what most people in their 30s want. So grownups are going to want, and they're going to be able to afford 800, 1,000, 2,000 square foot uh, residences instead of the 500 to 700 square feet, which is built in these CBDs. So, you know, it's two live, work, walk environments that offer space and are affordable both within cities and between cities. I have to pull you up on the three to four days going back to the office in Connexus Financial. Uh, we've now changed our office. We've now moved to an office half the size of what we were in the start of the year. And then if you did a quick straw poll, I think you'd be struggling to get people to get into the office more than one day a week, maybe two. It's going to be a hard change. And we're all in our mid 30s, early 40s. So I'm curious around, you know, what do you think will drive people back to the office? Well, what people want out of the office is that productive spark that you get from bringing people together. Now, to your point, you don't need to bring people together for five days a week. You don't even need to bring them together for four. I think the answer is probably about three days a week in the States in terms of the number of days per week that people will be brought together. And that's productive. You know, a lot of everybody's time in terms of knowledge workers is focused desk time. And there's really no reason to make a long commute into an office to sit and focus at a desk. And I think that's one of the great things that's going to come out of this cycle in terms of outcomes and how people will behave differently in the future. So I agree with you, it'll be fewer days per week. But employers, they don't lease office space. Well, we as office owners wish they did. What they're doing is they're buying productivity, the uh, the spark of creativity you get by bringing people together. They're buying corporate culture and training, particularly for their new hires. And it's really hard to onboard people as new hires in that environment. And that's what's going to bring us back in together. But you know, to your point, I don't know that it's going to be, in fact, I'm pretty sure it won't be five days a week anymore. Also, it won't be necessarily entirely to the same cities. So the hub and spoke phenomenon, there'll be more large profitable employers that are locating uh, facilities outside of these coastal markets. And there's been a lot of inroads there already. So if we look at Facebook, Google, Microsoft, both in terms of their leasing activity, which has been biased away from the coast over the course of this year, it hasn't been a lot of leasing, but clearly there's been some away from the coast and their pronouncements to their employers, employees saying they don't have to be at the mothership and if they choose to work elsewhere, you know, we need to discuss your pay. So that's going to be a balancing act. People are going to be re relocating. A lot of the beneficiaries will be in these, these mountain and southeastern cities. And um, as I said earlier, increasingly, those will be high value add facilities. So the 2020s is the confluence of technology and demographics. Hey, in the long run, San Francisco, New York, LA, great cities. They'll, continue to be important. But it, it's going to be a rocky five years until we get to a better place and, and say seven to 10 years from now in these cities. Are you seeing particularly in the office space, a lot more focus on end of trip facilities, other sorts of other um, safety, um, maybe cultural adaptations or amenities as part of the offices now when, when you're seeing new leases? To be sure, that, that's a really good point, Alex. We're seeing some uh, tenants really reorient their space on new leases um, where they're cutting space usage by, say, 5, 10, 15 percent. 
And the space in, in it that's newly leased has much more in the way of meeting space, communication space. Um, so the nature of the space is reflecting the fact that you don't go to an office to sit at a desk and work. You go to an office to meet, collaborate, build, and, and, and uh, you know, create order out of the chaos and create sparks of life. So that the leasing is different. It's for a little bit less space perhaps, but it's for better space because some of the most valuable work is done in the office. I'm curious then, does that then tie back to your winner-take-all real estate that many of the buildings that were fine maybe a year or two years, five years ago are now, are now really no longer fit for purpose and they're almost you know, obsolete in the current structure of working? Oh, I think that's exactly right. That's exactly right. So if we look at this environment where the office has to do so much more than house somebody sitting at a desk, and this is also true for, for retail, but you know, if we look at that environment, um, it's going to demand more from all buildings. And some buildings can accommodate that, and some really can't. And so the buildings that cannot, they're going to suffer. So, so let's, let's look at this a little bit more, more deeply. So if we take some recent trading activity that we've looked at, um, for example, in Raleigh, North Carolina, that is a city that is commanding a lot of in-migration and certain sub-markets within Raleigh um, are doing very well, um, better than others. And the best buildings are commanding top rents. So recent trade, the Dillon, that's a well-located office building in high-end, high-growth submarket that recently traded for about $600 a square foot. That's up from about $450 expected value pre-COVID. $600 a square foot is a cracking number in, in Raleigh, North Carolina. That's the big number. And that was driven by a lower cap rate. Investors are willing to pay for low risk cash flows, especially with yields so hard to find. And that cap rate you know, in the, in, in the five to five percent or so range looks pretty attractive on a global basis. Now, in contrast to your question, Alex, high rise class B assets, such as a recent trade in LA, the US bank tower, um, that tells the, the downside of the story. That's a classic 50 story glittering glass and steel tower, about 25 years old. That, that type of asset in the coastal markets, a little bit of age on it, that's selling for far less than it would have pre-COVID. Now that asset recently traded for about $300 a foot. And there's a question as to whether this building can command occupancy um, uh, as it currently stands. It's probably gonna require significant CapEx to bring the building to a higher standard. That building likely would have been four to $600 a square foot in January of this year. That's the 25 to 50% discount. And the CBD of the US is second largest city. So that's painful. So we're gonna see a lot more of these write downs and valuations to meet these lower demand characteristics. So, so in summary, the best assets not only command much more of the leasing because office tenants need that office space to be highly productive and it needs to be the best, but also investors are gonna take a dim view on anything that can't command occupancy. So A buildings get better cap rates and better demand growth and um, B buildings, B location, or submarkets that aren't as competitive, they're getting a worse cap rate and worse rents. So that's the winner take all future, especially for office, but also uh, for retail and you know potentially for other property types over time. You mentioned about the significant amount of capex that's required for some of these buildings. What's your thought then on value add style strategies? Is it is it too risky in the current environment? 
No, there, there are value add strategies that make sense, but you need to be able to get to an endpoint with that building where it'll command occupancy. So if you look at um, submarkets around the country um, that have that live work play environment that um, this week aren't 50 stories tall, that have good access to labor and preferably are in a market with, with increasing population growth, those are markets where value add might make a lot of sense. We're able to take advantage of it. But, but it, importantly, Alex, demographics in the US are not gonna be what they have been historically. Better than Japan, better than Germany, but um, demographics are on the wane with the baby boomers retiring. So you really have to be careful with regards to where you execute value add so you get both the people and you can execute on a building that will command occupancy. It's interesting you mentioned demographics quite a few times now, but you haven't really touched on tax and regulation, which is what we seem to see anecdotally through the press, that there's been a lot of movement out of particular states in the US because of tax um, and you know uncontrolled regulation, people feel. Um, how much do you feel that those two factors are, are going to drive uh, migration across the US? Certainly they will. I mean, you make a good point. It's There's a little bit more involved with it than only um, taxes, but that's a factor. Some of the cities experiencing the worst out-migration, they have tax issues. They're in New York and they're in California and there are challenges in those states. We're, we're looking at, at you know, um, proper opportunities in those states over time. We think best buildings, best locations over five to 10 years will do really well. Um, however, there's some, some near-term challenges driven partially by taxes, but there are other issues as well. There are safety issues in the center of some of these large coastal markets. Uh, many people don't feel as safe as they did. And there's affordability issues. So when you're a footloose and fancy free single 25 to 30 year olds, renting that studio apartment for $2,000 a month, $3,000 a month, that's okay. You don't need much space and you're living in the city. Um, when you, uh, you know, become a couple, potentially have children, uh, th the math changes quite a bit. Um, so there's a definite affordability factor in terms of buying a home. And home prices have increased in most markets in the U.S. this year. Um, and, and even if they've come off a bit in markets like New York, they're still much higher than they were just two years ago. So, yes, it's taxes. It's also safety. And it's affordability for the growing demographic. Here's an interesting stat on demographics. And I apologize, Alex, I can go on on demographics all day, but the 25 to 29 year old age cohort, which has really driven so much of the apartment demand in the US the last 10 years, the millennials, they average 30 today. Well, the, in the US from 2020 to 2025, there will be a 1.3% decline in that age group the next five years. So it's not the end of the world, but it's no fun to build to a demographic that gets smaller. We've all seen how that turns out in Japan, requires some really focused uh, investment categories. Now, in contrast, if we look at uh, those hockey stick markets, they average uh, about two and a half percent population growth in the 30 to 44 year old group. And the best swath of that sorry to hit you with the deluge of numbers, is 3.2% growth over five years in the 30 to 34 year old age group in those hockey stick markets. 
that is by far the strongest growth we see in any slice of Americana. If we look at different parts of the market, here's another stat. Now, I'll, I'll be quiet with all the numbers after this. Over the next five years, working age population growth in the United States grows by 0.1% uh, on average over five years. That is really pretty sad. It's the lowest working age population growth since the Spanish influenza of 1918 and World War I. So you really got to focus on the submarkets, the buildings, and the strategies that will command occupancy because demand growth in the U.S. doesn't happen everywhere in the next decade. Look, I think demographics is, is definitely a key key piece to anything in terms of understanding the demand and supply potential mismatch. Um, and so you can obviously find some some clear winning trends from it. I'm curious around how much do you feel that given people are working from home a lot more or working from anywhere, as you described it, how much does the change or is there a change in the way that people choose to move to their locations? Like historically, people would always move to the city because the corporates were there and that's where they would situate themselves. But are you now seeing a slight change in companies now moving to these new second tier cities because they realize that people are moving there, so they should move there? That, that's a really good question. The answer isn't fully formed yet, but we see some clues in terms of where recently seen activity has been, some company pronouncement that'll become clear over the next year. So the hub and spoke movement for large companies. Um, so we look at a company like Google. They have um, just an ocean of space in the Bay Area, and most of it is headquartered in, in our proprietary scoring system of four to six, in a one through six rating. Um, they have a couple of facilities that score a three, sort of in, in how good the location is, quality of location. Where's that? That's a location that's close to the bedrooms where people live in the suburbs. It's not about being in the best business location. It's about being in the best commuting location for bedroom communities. So let's look outside of the Bay Area. So if we look in Austin, they've got uh, a lot of space Least downtown and a top quality building and submarket, top of the market. And then they've got a suburban facility that is not in is quite a high ranked market for being the best location in town, but it's extremely convenient for commuting, especially people who want to avoid that commute to the central location. So that, that's telling us something. We look at leasing activity like Microsoft in Atlanta and Midtown where they took a location that was a little easier to get to than the CBD, accessible to a wide swath. So there's a pattern here. In the home market, they've got a lot of facilities. They go to the spoke market. If it's a large market, they've got one building, which is a great building, depending on what's being done in the building, could be as good as the headquarters. And then they may have a, a, a bedroom facility access building. So that, that indicates where people are leasing. And, um, and then finally, if you look at a market like Pittsburgh, where they're only going to have one facility, it's in, again, it's a robotics capital of the world is Carnegie Mellon. They've got a building across the street. It's a great building. It's, just, it's right up there with the other facilities. If they were to open a second facility, I'm guessing it's going to be, you know, close to that because it's a smaller market. So I think that's the pattern. Now, you know, Goldman Sachs recently made a pronouncement that they may move more of their back office activities to Florida. So um, we'll see what that looks like. But I think there's a pattern with regards to if you only if you got a big facility, and there's only one, it's in a great place. 
we got a couple, maybe one of them is more educated, more oriented to bedrooms than anything else. You mentioned just briefly there, you use a scoring system. You know, what, what are the factors that make up these scoring systems as you look at particular cities? Well, um, the, the scoring system, we look at a, at a number of different metrics that sort of drive um, uh, the score. It's six different categories. Um, and we've been using the system for you know 20 years now, uh, since the inception of the firm. We refined it's a little bit more data-driven than the data would support 20 years ago. But we're looking at the business environment in terms of the metropolitan area in the state, the connectivity of that location, uh, human capital, education levels, um, change in education levels, the nature of the demographics that, that live there, industry drivers. So um, uh, we would look at the petrochemical industry as being a little bit more challenged. And we would look at uh, the robotics industry as being a little bit more advantaged. So we handicap according to not only the level of pay and the types of educations there, but what are they pursuing? We look at innovation uh, in the particular submarkets, what we can see for, for what's going on there. Public sector, which has to do with um, the quality of education uh, for the middle class that they don't have to pay for, um, the safety levels, and then finally, uh, sustainability, which we would look at things like commuting patterns, household incomes on a net basis after uh, taxes and expenses versus other cities. So it's, it's um, one of those really long word problems that you had at university. And uh, we, we do this both at the metropolitan area and down to the geographies. Submarkets are a little bit smaller than a conventional submarket. Sustainability obviously is becoming a bigger and bigger issue now for, for many of the asset owners. How much do you see that as playing a, a, a role in, in where people choosing to you know, situate their office? What I would say, uh, what we're seeing in the data in terms of uh, historically, historically it hasn't had as big of an impact at the metropolitan area level. So, you know, if you look at, at some markets like California, California is technically overdue for an earthquake. Um, it should have happened by now. I think after it happens, people will be on board with, you know, um, environmental risks around that soon. Um, you know, so there are things that I think are a little bit underappreciated that, that we put in our model, maybe, maybe not everybody else does. We have definitely seen that flooding is a risk. You know, we've had, you know, flooding damages around the states. We're very sensitive to that in terms of where we target our investments. Um, and, you know, we also look at sustainability a little bit more broadly uh, in, in terms of resilience. Um, how does the uh, sub-market, the building, the employment doing a downturn? I think that, that's a little bit uh, underestimated by a lot of people. What's my uh, downside as well as what my upside is? Um, and then we also look uh, quite a bit prospectively at sort of how livable is it for the average middle-class person? That didn't make a big difference the last 10 years when the millennials were not focused on the things that make up middle class and, and uh, the average nuclear family. I think that changes the next 10 years. And we've seen that in migration. Curious now around how do you structure some of these deals or your preference for particular capital structure? How do you think about the, the makeup of these investments? 
Well, I think we're we're fairly typical versus most of our peers, and we do we do value add, core development. So we do use leverage against uh, stabilized assets, especially not a ton of leverage. You know what we've found is that having less leverage gives you a little bit more flexibility when times are bad uh, through cycles. So we definitely use leverage, although it's it's not as much as as some other shops have. We focus on equity, so we're not buying tranches of debt. In terms of, of, of our purchases, we will typically not exceed 60% as a matter of policy in terms of, of leverage. And you know, quite often we're, we're underneath that. Um, and, and some of it has to do with our partners. We run some special investment programs for some high net worths that have different leverage preferences in terms of getting to a certain level of cash on cash and uh, some others that feel they want very low leverage. You know, if you talk about major global sovereign wealth funds or pension funds, they may feel that, that no leverage is in order because they're, they're investing across the spectrum. So it sort of depends as well on what the preference is of, of the investor. And as we move into 2021 and, and hopefully see the back end of, of COVID, what particular trends do you think are, are still maybe untapped by many investors that they haven't seen? Is there anything specific that you think that the typical investor may have missed? That's a great question. And, you know, as, as an economist, that's the question that we always ask ourselves. What is the assumption that I'm making, which is not valid? Or what could prove to be just a wild card out of the box that nobody is thinking of? So one that really comes to mind, Alex, is around migration. So most of us reference some, some very venerated third parties uh, for our population growth forecast. And there's, there's about half a dozen of them uh, in the States and in most markets around the world. So look at one of those, which you know, I won't call it anybody in particular. If we look at LA, San Francisco, and New York, especially San Francisco and New York, and we look at their population growth the last five years, pre-COVID, so through the end of 19, what was the population growth? And we compare it to their forecast population growth from pre-COVID beginning of this year to four years out, it's higher. So the third parties are using higher population growth in this environment where we think people will increasingly get worried about not just COVID, but also safety, taxes, population migration, commuting patterns. So we don't think that really makes sense. Because you can check all of your uh, investors can see what they're using. But I, I think you'd find that a lot of the third-party forecasters are using stronger numbers in the last five years, which makes no sense to us. So that's downside risk. But there's two sides to this. There's upside risk. Where do those people go? So these same third parties are using lower population growth forecasts for the next five years for, for example, Atlanta, Austin, and Dallas. So we'll see. We'll see how this shakes out. I think those markets will fare at least as well as they did the last five years, maybe better. Most of us are using third-party data to help us look at the market or doing ground-up forecasting. So I think that's a risk people are not thinking of, that two years from now, five years from now, we'll see things turn out to be a little different. That's been a fantastic conversation. Thank you very much for your time today, Hans. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on, Alex. Thank you for joining us. All views expressed on this podcast are subject to change and do not necessarily reflect the views of Connexus Financial. This podcast is for educational purposes only and should not be relied upon as investment advice.